few keys. This is the key to my pickup and this is the key to my home. The key to my laptop is letters and symbols. My birth date's the key to my phone. I once stole a key to a diary and once turned a key made of bone. What this key can do, I've forgotten. This key is some other key's clone. This key takes the form of a feather and swings the green doors and the roofs of these oaks. This match is the key to an altar and frees a black serpent of smoke. This key is the bronze in my brown left eye, but what shuddered tonight is unclear. This key is the pitch and the torque of my voice. May it fit in a generous ear. If these coins make a key to the turnpike, the toll booths a bribable latch. So a vein is impressed by a needle and hardwood submits to an ax. But you can't coax a mind with an order or force belief loose with a fact. When I've turned, it's the teeth in a bittersweet song, their diligent baffle and scratch. This last key, of course, is a wristwatch. I turn it by sitting stock still, by letting the clouds turn around me, by adding more drinks to my bill. Eventually, everything opens. The blue fist of evening, the maw in these rocks, with a click, it all fastens behind me. This last key is also a lock. This is Timothy Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 231. Today's guest is George David Clark. George David Clark is the author of Reveille, winner of the Miller-Williams Prize, and Newly Not Eternal, just released from LSU Press. The editor-in-chief of 32 Poems, he previously served in various capacities on the staffs of Meridian, Iron Horse Literary Magazine, and the Best New Poets Anthology. Since 2015, David has taught creative writing and literature at Washington Jefferson College, where he is now an associate professor. He lives in McMurray, Pennsylvania with his wife, Elizabeth, and their four children. And that last poem was one of the opening poems in the book, A Few Keys. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the theme of the book? How did the book come to be? And, um, and, and how did you know that it was a book with this content? I'm always kind of curious about that. Yeah, it's, I mean, the oldest poems in this book, Tim, or it's, um, I was, you know, looking through them the other day and somebody asked me a, a similar question. I think there's a poem in here that's like 14 years old. Um, so back even when I was a, a doctoral student, some of the first, the first couple of poems in here um, came together. So I've been working on this, the poems that are in this collection for, you know, I think well over a decade at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I think maybe the, the book found it, its shape when I, I wrote this crown of sonnets that um, maybe we'll get to a little later on that are um, a little half crown of sonnets for uh, the son that my wife and I lost um, um, in childbirth. So that... Um, that kind of gave the the poem a, a narrative event at its center, and then I sort of built the book by gathering other things that seemed in conversation with that event, even though some of the poems preceded it by by many years. Yeah, yeah, I love the way that it's structured. Um, the way that really that tragic, you know, heartbreaking story in the uh, ultrasound poems is sort of like a scaffolding that the other poems are laid out across. Um, and it's just it's a really nice way to lay a book out. 
Um, did it take you a while to find this form? Did like you know when you write a crown of sonnets, you'd think that those would all be together in one thing as the center of the book, but then you have them spread out with different poems in between them, which is interesting too. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I I found that idea. Um, try, I, it was only seven poems, you know, it's half a crown of sonnets, really. So it's, I I was thinking about potentially publishing them as a chapbook, and was thinking about different ways of of putting them in conversation with other poems, and um, nothing quite made sense. It's hard to have like that. Those poems come first, and then something else follows it, or something else comes first, and then you've got this this series that is, you know, it's, it's working as a crown. So I had the idea of just splitting them up a little bit, you know, one poem or, or two poems from the, the sonnet um, series, um, and then a, a break, and a couple poems that were doing other things, and then to come back to, to pick up that, um, the crown again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's... So then I, I just yeah. kept that for, the, for one of the sections of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's hear another poem from the book. Yeah, maybe something I'll, I'll say to introduce this. There's um, the image on the cover is the, the three fates. And I've got um, maybe my, my own versions of the three fates in, in the form of some other archetypes in this book. So there's a, a trio of persona poems that are song of these archetypal figures that kind of do the work of the fates. And, and this one's called Song of the Genie. I lake the drought. I bake flood off again. I make fools rich enough that for a while they fool the rich enough to dictate style. I beautify, I muscle up, I thin, I pheromone, I woo, I violin the mood, I penthouse sweet in private aisle, I ease death out of view, but never smile, and only ever last what's always been. The books and movies are confused, of course. It's my warm, time-worn rag that rubs your mind to force the rank wish free, voracious, blind, and magnetized to bankruptcy, divorce, exhaust fumes primed into a past-due Porsche. At last, I'd grant you you, but you decline. Yeah, so there. So you see two poems from the book to start out with, and they show really the the richness and intricacy of these, and, and the music too, and the use of things like like I violin and I pheromone, those verbification of those words, um, and such a such a rich style of writing, and so much musicality in them. Um, so so what is your what drew you, would you say, to writing that style? Is that is that something a way you've always written, or is that something you find yourself more drawn to over the years? Yeah, it's it's kind of a tricky question to answer. My first book doesn't sound like that very much at all. They're almost all of the poems in that first collection were free verse. And I write um, about half the time. I think I write free verse now. Um, but this collection um, is almost all metered and rhymed. So it's part of the what holds these poems together, I think, is that uh, that aesthetic bent that you're you're describing. I'd, I'd, it's not the only thing I love, but I do really love meter and, and rhyme. And um, once I start on a poem that has those pleasures, they kind of drive the rest of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, they help me find my way to the end more than anything else. So when I, when I um, have a line or a gesture or two that starts in that direction, um, I don't want to turn it off. 
Mm-hmm. Do, do you find that it's hard to switch back and forth between this style and, and other, you know, more, I guess, traditional isn't the right word, but more common styles, maybe you could say? Yeah, I think that's true, especially with, with sonnets, that because they they kind of write themselves, you know, you're, you know where you're going to make your turns and everything. If you write a couple of, of sonnets in a row, it's at least for me, it's hard to, de- to then turn that off and do something else. Um, because it, the form can be such a, um, an easy scaffolding to put the language of the poem on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it can, I think it can be a, um, an unhealthy temptation to, to have that in the back of my mind as something that I can rely on and not stretch myself to, to make different kinds of music or to let my mind you know, twist and turn in different ways than a sonnet turns. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's take it back to the early days um, of, of your poetry career. Uh, what was it? Was there a time you knew um, that poetry was something you'd want to take seriously? Uh, you know, and, and how old were you were at that point? Yeah, it's, when I when I started college, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also I mean, I had some really unrealistic expectations. I knew I really loved writing. Novels were important to me. It was more fiction than anything else. I thought I'll be a doctor who writes books or something like that. I mean, other than Amit Majmadar and I guess C. Dale Young, that that isn't really a thing that people do. Um, and um, as I moved through my um, undergraduate experience, I um, realized I wasn't really that interested in medicine. It just sounded like a, a good career. I was really interested in um, stories and poems. And I, I had a, a great um, professor as an undergraduate, um, Bobby C. Rogers, um, great teacher and a, a great poet in his own right, um, who made poetry seem like a real thing to me. Um, I think in, in high school, I, I had a, a terrible poetry experience. You read um, Frost, Nothing Gold Can Stay, and Dickinson, A Narrow Fellow in the Grass, and um, in Nothing against those poems, but those aren't even in my you know top fifty favorite Frost or fifty favorite Dickinson poems, mm-hmm. and it's it, it wasn't something that moved me in any way in high school. But in in college, I found a, a professor who took it seriously and obviously loved the things and kind of gave me permission to love them too. Do you remember the the first poem you loved? Was there one you came across in college that you know you realized was different than than the ones you read in high school? Yeah, it, it's, it was a, a, a series of um, bishop poems that we read. And the, the specific poem for me was The Man Moth. That was just such a strange... I mean, you could never do something like that in a short story, really. Um, it just seemed like a, a kind of language I'd never encountered before. And it was super exciting and fun. And, you know, it's, um, it's funny and charming and surprising at every turn. I, I, yeah, I really flipped for The Man Moth was the, the first poem that really did it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's let's hear another poem. Um, and next we had uh, um, ultrasound, your picture. So one of the one of the half crowns we were talking about. Yeah, this is the the first one in that series, um, and it has a, an epigraph at the um, at the beginning. Henry Thomas Clark, ten seven two We framed an ultrasound of you and Peter holding hands, or almost, in the womb. Your moon-bright arms crossed in a black balloon with weak and weights 
and heights in millimeters penciled on the side. We say it's good that he at least was with you when you died, that unlike us, you'll never know the why of being lonely or what naked falsehood feels like in one's mind. You see, it's false to say your death was somehow grace. It's grace that spared Cain's life and later gave Eve other sons despite creation's wastes and faults. Wish you could have known love's aftertastes. I wish you'd had a chance to hate your brother. Yeah, and so that's a sonnet, um, not written in a traditional form, though. The shape in the page gives it a lot of white space um, with the, the couplets and then the um, every other line indented. Um, wh- why did you choose to, to structure the poem that way? Is there a, is there a name for this form? No, um, I, I'm forgetting what the, the, the term is. It, um, there's um, an essay that Amit Majmadar, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, wrote in, um, in Literary Matters, where yeah. he talks yeah. about... Um, um, I've heard the word... Uh, units of meter that are, are longer than the line. What was that? Curginated is the word I've heard. A curginated okay. sonnet. Is that possible right. or is that just someone else has made up? That, that's not the term that Majmadar uh-huh. uses, but I, I'm willing to call it that. Um, but just a meter that's longer than the line. Mm-hmm. So that in these poems, the, the pentameter unit it covers two lines. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I'd, you know, I, I, at least some of the early drafts of those poems were you know, they looked like a, a sonnet on the page, you know, 14 lines as opposed to, to 28. And it, it, they just seemed too clunky to me, I guess, that I'd, um, I wanted to, um, to have them maybe a, to put a little more white space around them. Um, I also wanted to not rely, t- I wanted to take some pressure off of the end rhymes and try to put a little more pressure on some of the rhymes that were getting buried in the middles of the lines. So it was partially a, a sonic choice too. That I'd, I I hope that they sound a little bit different, at least on the page. I don't know if you would notice anything hearing them read aloud, but maybe the eye hears some of the internal rhymes differently when they're featured on the end of the half line, rather than if you're just looking at fourteen lines of pentameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting the way to me. Um like the line length and the amount of white space is sort of the guidance for how fast to read. So the effect to me, when you have a lot of white space and shorter lines like that, even in a traditional sonnet form, which it is, is that you get to read the the poem slower and sort of luxuriate in the sounds more than you would almost rushing through a sonnet with a pentameter line is a relatively, you know, I guess midsize, you'd call it line. But with that shorter line, you end up going down and going really, really slow. And I think that really adds to the musicality and lets you appreciate it, which is, I think I, I really enjoyed reading these because of that. Um, is that how you think of it too? I, I don't know. I never know. There's so many things in poetry that you don't know if it's like how you encounter a poem individually is the same way as other people do. But to me, that's what it does. Well, I mean, if that's the effect, I would love for that to be what, what happens when someone reads one of those poems, Tim, that, I, I do think that it's a rhythmic choice and a choice that's trying to do some different things with the rhyme. Uh, yeah, I, I would love for that to be the effect that it has on the page. And I, and you kind of don't know when you're writing it either. It's, you, it's, you have some vague things in mind about how you're pronouncing it in your head as you're reading the poems. And I, I mean, I tend to read to read my lines out, out loud as I'm writing them, you know, it's, but you don't know whether the reader is going to hear the same sort of thing. And it's hard to, it's, to have a whole lot of confidence about how something like a line break or, you know, 
the indention in those the second half of the pentameter units, how that's actually going to read in someone else's head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about, given this poem, is the the um, the person who was directed to. You know, this poem is, is written for you know toward Henry, the you in the poem, um, and there's a real intimacy to that because of it. But there's also a sense um, of maybe being written for Peter. Um, you know, their surviving son, um, and who, you know, how much of that is in your head as you're writing the poems in this book? Is that something that you're thinking about of, of your family reading these poems later? And, and is it addressed, you know, how, how does the address affect the, uh, the way the poems come out? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I think I did have that in, in mind when I was, was writing them, how my, um, how my family might respond. Less so Peter. Because, I mean, it's the time that I wrote, I think I wrote these maybe four out four years after um, Henry's death, but Peter was still for himself. I mean, um, he was so young that it was hard to think about him reading them or engaging with them in any way. I was thinking more about, um, you know, I had in mind this person, Henry, who I was writing to. And then I, I also felt like I was kind of writing not just to, to Henry the person, but like to this abstraction, because he's not a person who I ever met or, you know, I, I held his body in my arms, but I never held him or had, you know, he was he was dead before I held him. And so he he's almost like a, an embodiment of like lost potential or something to me. And I had it in mind, like kind of writing toward that abstraction. But the other person that I was thinking about was my wife, of course, in terms of writing these poems and what she would make of them and to what degree um, they could potentially be poems that would hurt her. And I, I think I'd, I convinced myself they wouldn't be, um, that they would be poems that um, that honored the, the hurt that, um, that we suffered together. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I've shared some of them with Peter since then. He's Peter's nine now, so it's, um, he can read these poems. And um, he loves that his name is in my book. Um, that that means something to him. He he can be very moved by conversation of Henry, and we we talk about Henry at, uh, around the dinner table. And you know, he's it's not something that is like a secret in our house or anything. Um, and I'd, I don't know how Peter might feel about these poems as he gets older, but right now he's very sensitive about anything like Henry. He'll he'll ask questions about him. He He's interested in the idea that they were identical twins, mm -hmm. that Henry would have looked just like him, except for now like he has some scars and his hair is cut in a certain way. And every, they, they might look different now, but essentially they were, you know, they'd be hard to tell apart. Um, he's interested in that and, um, he can be moved to tears by some of those conversations, but he also initiates them. Yeah. So maybe that's an answer that, that isn't really an answer. I, I'm still trying to figure out mm -hmm. what he's going to make of these poems. And I, I hope he will feel encouraged by them, even though a, a couple of them um, admit to negative feelings that I felt towards Peter, you know, and, um, stupidly, you know, at, at that time that I was mad at, at everybody. You know, I was mad at, at God and mad at Elizabeth, who was not to blame in any way, and also mad at the, the child who survived and myself and my other kids and anybody you could count. I, I was mad at them. And I, I think some of that's acknowledged in the poem, 
and in a way that I hope isn't hurtful to Peter as he as he gets older. Yeah, well, to me, I mean, I was just thinking about how you know valuable that must be to know you know what things are like and what your parents' thoughts are. I think there's a tendency really to hide those kind of stories, you know, from people. Like even myself, I had a half sister that I barely knew about and that we didn't really talk about much. And it, it took me until I was like in my late 20s to even realize that there was an actual deep psychological thing going on there with that. Like it was something I like thought I never thought of, but it turned out like the thought that just the understanding that there was some absent half sister that was like part of, you know, half related to me, uh, my father's daughter, um, sort of hung with me in a weird way and let, and changed like the way I interacted in relationships and things like that. And, you know, so those things that we never talk about are so, um, you know, so I don't know, scarring is the right word. Um, but they, they leave an impression. And so having this artifact of what it was like to experience that and then, you know, and have that openness throughout, um, too, uh, I think it seems to me in the future would be really valuable for, for Peter. Well, I, I hope so. I think there's also the risk that you could talk about it too much and that, that, um, he could feel overshadowed by the brother who never did anything wrong or something like that. You know, it's, um, but the, our kids will, when we're, you know, praying before the, the meal or something at dinner and they'll, they'll go around the table and pray for the people sitting with us and everything. They'll include Henry in their prayer. Um, um, so I, I don't know quite what to make of that or what, what that will mean long-term, but yeah. So I don't know that we've got the answers, but we're trying to figure it out with the kids. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like so many things, we can only guess and, and try to hope and maybe adjust along the way. But but it seems to me that openness is the, the key to so much, you know, health, you know, mentally, health-wise. So it, it just seems great to be that open about it. Um, let, let's hear the other poem, uh, there, another ultrasound poem you're going to read, which was um, Urn, or Your Urn, I should say. It's on page 40. This one's got a lot of Peter in it. Yeah. Ultrasound, Your Urn. Tonight, Pete's teething on your mom's Bluetooth. He found the scissors to derange his hair. We've left the gate down and he's on the stairs or else he's scrambled up a dollhouse roof. The crumpled books and cracker crumbs are proof he's loose. Disordered blocks, toppled chair. Some days he's absolutely everywhere until I wish him gone to tell the truth. Not you. You stay exactly as you're left, the tame and quiet twin, the easy one, the boy who never makes a mess, the son whose whispered name will be our shibboleth for innocence, whose only fault is done, who never cries or fights or takes a breath. Yeah, another strong poem. That was an ultrasound, your urn, from um, from this book, Newly Not Eternal, the new book from George David Clark. And I just love, I mean, if everything um, that I love about form in poetry might be summed up in this great line, he's loose, disordered, blocks top, a toppled chair. Some days he's absolutely everywhere. Just such a great description. And the way that the, the rhyming and the meter make the, the poem, you know, that, that line, that image seems so true. You know, I mean, that, that's like the, the miracle that... Um, that, that metrical, you know, formal poetry can do right there. Um, did, when did you, when were you introduced to formal poetry? Was it something that you, you know, I, a lot of people, you know, go through MFA programs without even, you know, doing any kind of scansion, or any kind of, you know, work on meter. Did you have a professor that, that turned you on to it or was it something you found yourself? That, that first professor that I, I studied with, um, 
he writes in a, a long kind of C.K. Williams style line that's so long it breaks the right margin. Um, um, and with it, there was some conversation about form in that class. I think we there was, you know, it's a week in the, it's the introduction to creative writing class where you had to write a sonnet or, or something like that. But at, I wasn't very interested. Um, I wrote only in free verse, um, I think, but with, with maybe one or two exceptions in those, you know, because someone was requiring me to do it for an assignment um, all through the MFA. And I, um, uh, it's the MFA program that I went to, all of the faculty wrote free verse. Um, there was another student in the program at the time who was writing some some in meter, but um, that was about it. And I, I wasn't very interested in it then. But I, I started reading more poems in um, in traditional forms by the time I graduated. And I felt like rhythm especially was a real deficit in my work that I just didn't have a good ear for it. And that it, it seemed like even if I was, you know, I wasn't planning to write in form, but I felt like even as a free verse poet, I needed better command of rhythm. And um, so when I was um, looking for a PhD program, I was consciously searching for someone who was writing in form and could could help develop that side of my ear, even if it never meant that I wrote a, a poem in meter myself, that I, I felt like that was something I really needed to learn. Um, and it was a, maybe the biggest part of why I went to Texas Tech was to study with John Poach, um, whose work I really admired um, in form. Um, he was also a, a Christian, and that was attractive to me, too, someone who was, was interested in writing about faith which is a, a big, another one of my obsessions. So those things were kind of tied together. Somebody who was going to develop my ear and help help shape some of the, the work I was trying to do on that thematic note. Um, yeah. Uh, tell me more about your faith and how that ties into poetry. Because it's one thing, we had a Poets of Faith issue, you know, maybe eight years ago or so. And, um, you know, it's it's rare that poets are openly, you know, spiritual in that, in that way, in the way of organized religion. And, you know, that Poets of Faith issue came out, you know, it was a, enough of a... Um, you know, enough of a rarity that you could have a sort of issue just devoted to that. And then we had a lot of backlash. People, you know, were some people were upset about, you know, all these different religions. And I get a lot of hate mail, actually. One of the first of many, you know, many rounds of hate mail over the years <laughs> was um, because, you know, who wants to look at these poems about Jesus or whatever? And and it's, it's, it's strange to me, too, given how, um, you know, there's an entire world um, you know, of, of the United States and, and, and the world itself, that faith is really a central aspect. Uh, why do you think that um, uh, religion doesn't come into play in poetry more often? And um, and also, how does it inform your, your poetry? You know, to me, poetry, you know, poems seem kind of like prayers. Is that how, does it have that place within your, you know, your life? Yeah, I, I don't think all all poems are prayers, or not all of mine are, are prayers, but some of them are, and maybe even some of the best ones are. I, I think, I mean, I'm hoping that uh, however superficial the first like lines or images of a poem are for me, I think my hope is always that the poem's going to get as deep as possible. And the, the deeper things go, I, the closer they're going to get to some sort of spiritual conversation. So I Maybe that's, I mean, that could even be a danger to my poems, is that because that's, I know that's the deepest part of my own sense of the nature of reality, that it's easy to let a poem lead me there. Um, so it's, it might be something that I resist. And I, I've felt that as an editor, too. Um, 
you know, it's, as as you said, I mean, it's it's not something that you see an awful lot of in um, contemporary American poetry. And yet I'll frequently find myself with like, you know, we're only going to publish 32 poems in an issue and I'm 20 poems in and six of them have something to do with faith. Right. Even if they're antagonistic towards faith or something like that, that just that the spiritual conversation is really attractive and interesting to me. And I have to kind of rein things in a little bit. All right. No more of those kinds of poems for this this next issue. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's, it, it ties to yeah. me into the, the main question of why we're writing poems at all, which is like, why are we here? You know, I mean, it's sort of like almost every poem can be seen almost as a spiritual journey in that way. And that we're trying to figure out like what the meaning of this existence is and whatever, whatever we land on or find within the poem. It still feels to me spiritual almost. It, it's, it's rare that it's not. I mean, some poems maybe in the light verse area or aiming for humor, maybe. And there's some other poems doing some other things, political poems or maybe a different beast, too. But, but the, a lot of the poems just seem to be aimed in that direction, even if not in any kind of, you know, direct way. But it's still a central part of, of poetry, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, and I mean, that's true for, for me. I mean, I've, I've written lighter poems. I write love poems and uh, many other things, too. But often when I'm trying to, to figure out what something means, I mean, that's a big part of my, my imagination is the, it's the meaning that I, I find in my faith. Uh, well, let's read a let's read another poem, and next we have um, postcard from home. Yeah. Postcard from home. The birds in our county were bees, and the bees were rough nuggets of light. The green ponds we soaked in were trees, and the thunderheads' bellies were white. The sky was a bowl of pink grapefruit. Your house was all threshold and eaves. When a distance consumed and erased you, the kudzu here sputtered and seethed. Remember June's scorchy pervasions, that chill only sweat can achieve? The fires at our feet were impatience. Through the legs of our shorts ran a breeze. Wherever your luster has blown to, wherever your ebbing proceeds, there's our hollow that's filled you and known you, this nowhere that saunters and preens. In the sunflower's eye stands a hornet, in the stray's empty socket flee. In a brilliance where vision is forfeit, my eye lays its hand on your knee. And that was postcard from home. Another poem from the new book from LSU Press, Newly Not Eternal, by George David Clark. Um, one of the things that happens to me um, if I'm writing a lot of form is it, you sort of get um, stuck in the music of it, and that it becomes sort of overpowering a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, and it's so easy because of the way I think our brains operate. They're sort of like a large language model in our own head. And you can get stuck in this rut of sort of outputting the same meter and the same beat over and over again without enough variation. So it becomes sing-songy. Um, and so with an, as an intense meter and rhyme as you use, how do you keep from that? Is it, is it in the revision process? Or are you conscious of that as you're writing? Uh, like, how does a poem like that come out and in, in, so, to avoid feeling sing-songy, having enough variety and surprise that it doesn't become predictable? Because I think it's such a, a pull toward that, you know, what's expected in, of the rhythm and the, the meter and the rhyme. 
Yeah, I mean, with with that poem, Tim, I, I began that conscious that I was writing a bunch of sonnets and trying to do something different. Um, so I'd, I'd even the the very first drafts of that poem, I was trying to work in anapests instead of working in iams. And that a couple of the poems in the collection, I I think I I wrote in at least to some degree in, in an attempt to change the music that I was was working with in other poems, forcing myself to go in different directions. I hope the poem succeeds in not sounding sing-song. You know, there's some a couple uh, metrical substitutions in the poem, and you know, it's hopefully enough variation in the the length of the sentences and and everything else to to resist that effect. But it's um, I, I think it's a, a real danger for uh, a poet that's writing in form to fall in love with the, the rhythm and. Um, ignore the other pleasures in, in the poem that are, are more obvious to the free verse poet. And it's, I mean, it's, I think you said early on, maybe when you were talking um, with Benneth bef- before about how you're, you're looking for more formal work and in rattle, I, I feel the same way. And the form most, uh, much of the formal work I get, it has that, um, that real thrust of the music is well managed, but there's so little to see in the, the poem there's you know that the images are weak or there's you know there's some other thing that's an essential pleasure that's missing and I, you know it's um i i think that's something that the formal poets got to be wary of yeah i think you know some some people the, the ones who are great formal poets find a way to use form to drive surprise but but then there's a sort of opposite direction pull toward the expected because your ears sort of producing the content and that in, instead of it. So um, it's interesting. Do you, do you, um, you know, I talked with Annie Finch for the last issue of Rattle um, about all the different types of forms. She, she mentions a five that was anapestic trimeter, which is one of the different forms. Do you feel like um, um, that, you know, her, her sort of thesis is that different forms are neglected and we're sort of in like a prison, even within formal poetry of um, iambic meters. Um, and that that anapestic meter, which is short, short, long, which you heard in that in that poem there, um, and there are other meters too, um, you know that that used to be more you know written in, and we kind of forgotten them over the years. Is that your sense of it? And do you feel differently writing in anapestic trimeter like that? Yeah, it's, I think I I do feel a little bit different. That that poem, and then the first one that I read, a few keys. That's a it's, um, it's a poem in anapest also. Though it's a little harder to spot because, like the um, those sonnets where the pentameter is broken, you know, the the trimeter is is broken in the few um, keys poem. Um, but there's a, a handful that are are anapestic in in this collection. I, I certainly didn't um, wasn't trying to cover like all my bases or something like that. You know, there there are poets like um, Auden or you know. Um, Sometimes I think Alicia Stallings or it's Austin Allen, who they, they seem like they're going to do everything. You know, at some point, every form that that's out there, um, they feel compelled to to master it and um, to nail one of those. And, and that's not really my feeling. Um, I've got my favorite kinds of music, and I I think I I tend to write um, either um, in Anapests or I Am's. There's a couple of other things in the, this collection, or it's, um, you know, a, there's a, um, a poem in a, a more roughly three beat line that's a, a longer um, narrative kind of poem. 
Um, and then there are some poems that are, are rhymed, but not metered. And, you know, it's, um, it's a couple of things like that, but mostly I, I feel like I'm, I'm better at managing the, it's the I am's in Anapas and I'm, I'm not necessarily interested in tackling other forms just because they're out there and I haven't done them. Yeah, well, I am looking forward to the the episode when Annie comes on the Rattlecast sometime. Um, she's been out of the country, so so couldn't do it. But but we're gonna be. I'm gonna make sure she does a lot of different. I mean, covers those all five that she talked about. It's gonna be fun to hear the difference in the music. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, John Poach, and um, and 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 he was the founder of Thirty Two Poems. And I think it's a good segue too um, to talk about that. Um, how did you end up yeah. as the editor there, and 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 how long have you been doing it? And and you know, tell us a little bit about Thirty Two Poems. What the vision is? Yeah, well, when um, John um, and Deborah Ager were the the co editors when the the journal started, and I think they they originally um, they started at the, about the same time that one story started. Hmm. And I think they kind of imagined it as like the, it's the poetry equivalent of one story. But I'm not entirely sure that they knew of one story. They, that they both, both magazines came out like within a year or each other or something like that, but they were imagining something that was short enough and selective enough that someone could actually read the whole thing rather than so many of the, the other literary journals that, you know, are 400 pages long or it's, you know, it's just a, a really thick journal where the temptation is to, to look at the names that you know and read those. And then by that point, another one's come in the mail. Um, so that it was, you know, 32 pages, everything fit on a single page. It was a side staple journal to, to begin with. And I think they were just trying to find so They also felt like the really sh that shorter lyrics were get, being overlooked. And that's that's not necessarily all of what's motivating the the magazine now, but I think that was kind of a um, maybe I'm probably doing an injustice to the complexity of their imagination of the project, but that was some of what was motivating. Yeah, yeah, um, and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. The, the minimalism too. I mean, it, you know, just having something that 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 could be appreciated at that scale. You know, there's this way that there's just publish, 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 publish is like the idea given poetry's entry into academia, you know, publish your parish. Everybody's got to keep cranking out poems. And they always love to get in the mail 32 poems, which is this little, you know, thin book that you could enjoy every single poem in a short sitting and, and, you know, absorb it all. I think it's just a great format. And, and maybe one of the reasons why I wanted to do chapbooks too, is just the idea of how nice it was to read 32 poems every time it came in the mail. Well, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way about about Rattle Tim, but I sometimes think that like thirty two is too many. <laughs> like it's not quite, you know, it's it's really too much to sit down and read all all in one sitting. And I'm not sure that there are really thirty two great poems written in English every year, and we're certainly not publishing all of them. You know, it's, um, it's I don't know, it's, um, thirty two seems like a manageable amount, but it's. Um, it's it's sometimes hard to find 32 that um, that you love for mm -hmm. Red's an issue. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that? You know, I, it's, it's interesting because every issue of Rattle is... Um, with Rattle, is it, do you feel it's... it's... It's about, you know, every issue of Rattle has 35 to 40 poems. So it's really not that many more, actually, because we have the interview section and the, and the um, notes section in the back is pretty long. Um, and so when you combine, it's like 20 in the open section and then 15 to 20 in the uh, in the theme. And and I to to me, um, yeah, I feel like we publish every poem that we want to publish, you know. And it, and there's this way that too. I'm looking for a bigger variety than my imagination, 
you know, or my desires. So I'm kind of like trying to hit different people. You know, I want something for everybody in there. Um, you know, I don't want anybody to say like, none of these poems are for me at all, but I don't want to say everybody, these poems are for me either. You know, I want, you know, th to be enough variety where you're sort of surprised every time you turn. And, um, and so, so that's kind of the idea of it, of, of the way I think about it. So we sort of grab everything and trying to just have a big variety within what we're looking for. And so I don't know if you, do you think of it that way? Or do you think of a singular kind of aesthetic? Because I was trying to think about that. 32 poems does have, it's something more than just that they're shorter poems. Um, in, in a more digestible format. There's something about it that I have an affinity toward too. And I think Rattle does as well. And I was thinking maybe it's um, that they're all sort of about something. I, I don't know how to put it. Uh, they all have a real urgency in what they're trying to explore and figure out maybe. And there's less of, um, you know, less sort of bells and whistles and more trying to get to the heart of a truth more simply. It might be it. I don't know. What do you think of like the aesthetic and, and do you try to, how much do you try to stick within the, uh, the rails of it? Well, we, we've got a, a tagline and this is, you know, we're about to head to AWP next week. So I'll, I'll wind up giving this spiel like 300 times in the next you know, seven days. Um, we say that it's poetry for the ear, the eye and the ego that we're, we're looking for poems that are conscious of the ways that they sound, that some of the meaning is communicated through the poems sonic effect and that the even as they're doing that they're not forgetting the pleasures of sensual experience that that's often incorporated into that's the image work of the poem and then when we say that they're poems for the ego i mean that's kind of just because it sounds good but also that we're we're trying to point towards that the, the idea that we want there to be something at stake for the poet in the poem or the speaker of the poem that it, it's not just a, a language game but there's something human that's that's really at stake in the, the situation and the imagination. So with that is like a, a center of, of the aesthetic. I think we're trying to find ways of pushing that as much as we can. Like the the most compelling case that the, the associate editors will make as they're pitching a poem is something like, I love this poem. I think it's right for 32 poems, even though it's not what we do. Like that That's kind of the one that we want the most is something that's going to take that central aesthetic and then kind of stretch it in an interesting way. But I, I don't think of a, each issue as something for everybody. I think there are some readers that aren't just aren't going to be interested in, in what we do and that that's fine. Um, but we are trying to spread out that aesthetic and find new ways of surprising ourselves and and our readers with something that we enjoy that seems you know, Unlike, a little bit unlike us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe it's similar to what I was trying to say. I mean, there's definitely, you know, certain schools that, that we just, you know, we, we're not avant-garde type and we're never going to be unless there's something really, you know, accessible is a word that comes up too a lot. You know, if there's, if I'm not going to understand something and it's not in a way that makes me want to keep reading it over and over again, it's just not something that we've ever been interested in the almost 30 years we've been doing it. And so, so that kind of experimental stuff that, that really is pushing the boundaries of, of maybe poetry itself um, isn't as much what we're looking for. Um, and then, and then politics too, trying to not be too political, I think is something that we're, we're angling toward too. Um, and so there, there is like a range, but then we try to be, you know, scattered within the range or something. So it's interesting to hear that. What is the, what is the staff? What's the structure like? Is it, it affiliated with a college now? Uh, I'm, I'm really not exactly sure. No, it's not. Um, it's, 
we've that's the college that I, I work at um, gives us the mailbox um, because like you, we sometimes get hate mail and at, to the point where it's I didn't want it all coming to our house. I didn't want our home address on the, the website. I, um, a couple of years back, I got a, um, a letter with um, on one side. It was like Whitman's face with the eyes blacked out and then a poem that someone had written about how much they hated me. That's the back of the image. So at at that point, we asked the school to give us a mailbox. Um, But that's about it. Um, And um, our staff are scattered all over the place um, from um, out there in your neck of the woods in California to um, um, North Carolina and um, D.C. area to Texas. We're we're really all over the place. Everything that comes into the magazine, I take a quick look at, um, but a, a very quick look. And I'll um, filter out the things that I can, at a glance, tell aren't going to be a fit. And that tends to be things like the the first line, the word lips is in like red ink, and then sky is in blue ink, and the next line or something like, you know, it's just to try to save time for our staff as I'm checking things in. And um, then pretty much everything goes out to the associate editors. Um, they'll review it first, and then anything that they they like, um, we'll pass around and talk about and um, see if it's a, a fit for us. Um, and if they don't, then that's the end of it. Um, when we we're trying to to say no within a couple of weeks to as much as we can. If it's been more than a, a couple of weeks, somebody on the team has really liked it. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah, we're yeah. Well, well, that's a great, great way to be. Then speed is really important because there's just so much, you know, weight and so much, you know, the acceptance rates are so low. Um, how 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 long have you been doing it? I'm not quite sure about that. It's at least ten years, right, or so. Yeah, it's, um, I started working on the the journal in I think 2009 um, when I went to, to Texas Tech, and I was uh, one of the associate editors. Um, at the time, they were only taking um, submissions via mail. So I would just, you know, just be reading the slush pile and trying to make my case for the, the things that I liked. And a- about the time that I was finishing up the, the PhD, um, John Poach was looking to stop. Um, he-, he wanted to spend more time reading Dante and less time reading the slush pile. Um, so... Um, so he invited me to, um, to take the journal. And I think a lot of that was that our aesthetics were pretty similar, that mm-hmm. um, we liked a lot of the same things. And he, he liked the idea that the journal wouldn't transform drastically um, as a result of, of picking up a new editor. Um, well, let's do uh, let's switch and do another poem. Now, I want to talk more about 32 poems, but let's do another poem. Um, and let's do uh, let's do Sun on Your Shoulders, a really short one. And this was one from Rattle. Yeah, it's, um, thank you, by the way. (laughs) Sun on your shoulders. May the reckless sum of summer freckles, kiss by kiss, become a necklace. Yeah, so that's a different form, too. Very Speaking short, of, but... yeah, and trying to get, um, you know, something different and, and scattershot what we do. You know, that's a poem that comes in. You're like, I've never seen a poem like this before with each um, each syllable on its own line, a tiny little poem like that. How did that poem come to be? 
Oh, God, I don't even remember, Tim. I, I, I'll tell you what I do remember is that you t- you sent me an email saying that you'd take this poem. And I thought that I had a great idea for rethinking its shape on the page. Mm-hmm. You may remember I sent you an email and suggested, like, maybe it should be, you know, it's, with some of this movement, it should kind of like be necklace shaped or something on the page, which was a terrible idea. And I, <laughs> I'm really grateful you talked me out of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I don't remember but that, but it sounds like something I would I would try to talk you out of too. So that's great. Yeah. Well, you did the poem a service by doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think I'd, um, I, I don't remember how it started, but it was, um, I was apparently, what, remembering that um, I had tried that other shape just reminds me that I was still trying to figure out what it should look like on the page, even after I had felt like I was done with the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, the thing that I, uh, well, I should say too, if anybody has any questions uh, for George David Clark, let me know in the chat window. It's kind of the time to do that. Um, I'll be looking on Facebook or YouTube. So you just leave any questions. It helps if you do that, you know, all caps question. So I make sure I see that it's a question, uh, but I'm happy to pass anything along. Um, Cynthia Sims says the hate mail is so weird and it is. And so I, I wanted to ask you about that. Cause I think, um, I don't know if I've had a, an editor who's, you know, been an editor for longer on the show. I mean, maybe I have, but, but does it get to you like the constant sort of ne- there's a weird way that this whole business that we do trying to make magazines is sort of like we're like merchants and negativity, even though we're trying to be positive the whole time, because there's so much like rejection going out. So many, you know, somebody pours their heart out on the page and then you're telling them, well, this is not for us you know, better luck somewhere else or whatever, over and over and over again. We push that like reply button and then you get so much of it back too. I mean, there's so many, there's just so much hate mail, so much like animosity swirling around everything. Does that ever get to you or do you, you know, manage to not let it somehow? And if so, help me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it does get to me. Um, The hate mail doesn't. That, that that's not there's not a lot of that that's i mean i remember the whitwin one because it was so great since it came with an image and a poem that um described me in somewhat gory detail but um beyond that i mean we that's such a rare exception usually it's just people who are kind of angry to have gotten a rejection letter and they fire something back at you that's just angry that you said no and that that i can that doesn't occupy much space in my mind but I, I think what really gets to me is just telling people no all the time that I send, you know, 20 or 30 rejection rejection letters a day most days. And it might sometimes be, you know, weeks between accepting something. And I, I think that that can get to me for, for a while. I tried to, like, send some positive praise for someone's poem into the world every day. Like if I didn't accept something for 32 poems, that was that meant that I needed to send someone like a fan letter or something that, you know, just like a couple of sentences at night that, you know, I saw your poems such and such a place and admired it, that sort of thing. And I tried to do that for like, I think this was a couple years back. And I told myself I would do that every day. I would say something, you know, encouraging about something that I admired. Um, every day and I probably got through like February or something like that and it's just hard to keep up that pace too but even though I can't I can't do it every day I'm trying to do that as much as I can to maybe to offset the negativity of always having to tell people no so much yeah I mean it is such a, a strangely negative you know thing that we do and and you know I mean there, and there's no way around that 
Um, so, but, but let's. I mean, many... there's just so little. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's so little that I like. I don't like much. You know, well, I think that's the case for everybody, though. You know, I mean, you look through the people flip through 32 poems and say, oh, I like three of those, <laughs> you know, exactly. And that's and just the that'd nature be great. Of every, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and any book you like, there's certain poems that are seem great and there's others that don't. And then you wonder if, you know, how much overlap there is between people. Um, which is the nice thing. I love that we send our email every morning to so many people because then I get all the feedback from each poem and I can see, you know, the, 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 the responses everybody gives. Um, but, but it's, it, it's, I don't know, it's just such a strange thing. I mean, poetry is such an intimate, personal thing that, that you know, there's only so much of it that, that can really resonate with anybody. Um, so, yeah. I mean, there's, so on, on one hand, when you're, you're doing that most of the time and you're just saying no, I mean, it's, I feel like I've got to balance it by reading some things I really love at the same time. Like if I just, cause it's going to 32 poems is going to eat up a couple of hours of every day. If that's the only poetry that I read is the, you know, the unsolicited submissions. That's not, that's not a healthy way to spend like all of my reading time. Um, there are, uh, there are lots of times though, where you get way more positive response. Like with, right when an issue comes out, you know, it's from the the subscribers. We'll, we'll get lots of positive things then. And something like attending AWP, I mean, that is always just like such a, a shot in the arm for a, a little magazine like ours. That, I mean, sure, it's like some people will come by and they open the conversation with, you rejected my poems or so. You know, it's, you'll get that that kind of thing too. But nine times out of ten, it's somebody who comes by and says that they really admire the, the magazine or it's, it's a contributor that I've traded emails with and we've worked on a poem together, but we've never met in person. And like the, the positivity so outweighs the negativity um, in, in those moments that, that that really keeps us going, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely can relate to that. The nice that's the nice thing about the AWP, even though I never feel like I fit in. I still you do have those experiences, interactions, which are really nice. People just walking by. Um, Dick Westheimer asked a question, um, which I'm kind of curious about, too. How active are you in submitting poems to other journals? Um, has having your work rejected affected how you correspond with those who send poems to you? And that's the thing that I have struggled with the whole time being an editor myself, is that I, I don't know. I don't want to send poems anywhere because I feel really awkward about it. You know, like I'd love to send poems to 32 poems, but then it's like, you know, you were just on the Rattlecast and, you know, and I published you. So is there like this, like, well, since you published me, should you publish me? And then it just feels all awkward and weird and I just don't do it. So that's the way I just post my poems on social media and like forget about it. Um, do you have any issues with that or? Um, oh, I, I totally get that, Tim. I, I feel like it's so much easier to send poems to someone I don't know than somebody I do. Um, if I know the the editor, it's it takes a lot for me to to send poems there. Um, it, even more if if you're friends, you know, it's, it's, I I I don't really do that. Um, yeah, so a lot easier to send things to to a stranger <laughs> than to to someone that you know and you admire their work and um, you know that they're going to feel uncomfortable telling you no. I mean, that's one of the reasons that thirty two poems we we don't solicit anything. You know, as as a rule, I mean, there have been times where we're getting down to the to the deadline and we're five poems short, and I'll send emails to a couple people that who are strangers but whose work I've admired. But I I don't solicit anyone else because I don't want to have to tell them no, and I also don't want to publish stuff that I'd I don't feel excited about. So it's um, yeah, 
If they send through submittable, that's fine. And I'll, I'll try just to send, you know, if we're going to say no, um, I might send a, a note that says, you know, thanks for trying us again. If we published them in the past and, you know, it's, I'm still your fan, that, that sort of tone to it. But um, that's a lot harder if you're soliciting things. Yeah, uh, maybe that's you know, another thing that makes our aesthetics kind of similar because we don't solicit either. Um, the only poems we do in every issue, if there's an interviewee that we interviewed for the issue, we ask them for a poem because it's like, you know, you took the time for an hour to interview you, whatever. We thought you were good enough that you were worth talking to. So whatever you send me, I'm just going to put in. Um, but otherwise, I hate the idea of just exactly what you said of, um, you know, re- declining somebody, you know, after I ask for something seems terrible. <laughs> and then and, and also so except like, I, taking something I don't actually like is terrible, too. So I just every time I like think about maybe we should start doing that a little bit. I'm it just it just another thing that like grosses me out. <laughs> so and, and the thing is, I think most journals, it's like half or more, um, you know, solicited. Like I remember looking at the um, there's an ask me anything with a Paris review on Reddit. And um, one of the questions was, do you ever do you accept unsolicited submissions? And they were like, yeah, we had a poem three issues ago that was unsolicited and didn't even come from an agent. You know, and you're like, wait a minute. Does that mean every other thing in the entire magazine besides for that (laughs) is solicited? And the answer is yes. And yet they have people, you know, they have open submissions, you know, people sending them thinking that there's some kind of chance when everything is is just coming in from some agent or from, you know, asking somebody who's, you know, the big thing or whatever, won an award. And that's how other magazines kind of function. So it, I think it's maybe unique to, to not solicit and to be something we do. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I'm, I'm always afraid of is that um, they're going to send me work that they don't totally believe in either. And I, I felt tempted to do that, too, to... When people have solicited me, um, that to to send the things that haven't found a home somewhere else that I still think are pretty good, but they've struck out an awful lot, and maybe I'm not even sending them around anymore. Um, and I I don't want to then spend an hour politely declining work that the poet wasn't already going to send my way. I, I don't know. It's it's tricky, but I, um, I think things are made easier for me by not soliciting work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, same here. Um, and then one more thing, as an editor, um, like, what do you, what do you look for? Do you have any advice to submitters? Like, if they're sending in poems, is there something that like catches your eye? Um, I was listening to a Billy Collins show a while ago, and he said his advice was to put your best foot forward, like put the best poem in the beginning of the manuscript. Um, you know, uh, do you have anything else that that catches your eye and, and makes you stand up? Because because for me, well, well, you tell me, and then I'll I'll tell you how it feels for me. Uh, I think that's pretty good advice to put the the best poem first. Um, I think the the first thing that catches my attention is rhythm, and I don't mean meter, but I, just a line that sounds like a line where the it's the poet's thought of the way the the line is going to happen rhythmically across the page and i mean so much of what we get just th- that doesn't seem to be part of what the poet's thinking about and it really stands out when someone is is hearing the rhythm of the line whether it's um i mean it it happens in free verse as much or, or more than it happens in in metered verse but somebody who's really hearing that sound, I'm thinking of like um, um, Plath, um, love sets you going like a fat gold, is it flat gold watch or flat gold clock? I'm not sure. This is in Morning Song, I think. Yeah, love sets you going like a fat gold watch. 
that's it's free verse but it's man it just sounds so good rhythmically and that's the opening line of that that poem that that's the first thing that that jumps out at me um mm-hmm. when i immediately get excited about a submission when you come across a few lines like that yeah i was gonna say the exact same thing the um to me i always compare it to like like an old-fashioned radio dial you know you're just like turning in and you hear like static 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 then you hear voices but oh that's like people talking and you're static 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 oh more people talking and then oh there's a song and then you, you yeah. put the song oh that's a channel and then you put that in a pile i don't even like you know care about the content until later it's like these were the actual this is actually music and then uh, and then we'll consider which songs we want to pick later but the first step is just is there whatever that magical thing is which is a rhythm and it, it's a uh, you know, I mean, poetry is the music of speech, and, and music is about repeated patterns. And so there's something to repetition and pattern. I really don't know what it is, but there's a way you can just hear it. And you hear it within, like, one sentence, and that's all it takes. It's always amazing to me. Now, I, I love that that metaphor of turning the dial and looking for the music. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And then after that fact, so you have a, so so you do that. You've heard heard sort of a voice in poems. Then you have poems to consider. What other factors do you do you come into play at that point? I think I'd. I mean, I'd, I'm thinking about the rest of the things that we've already taken for the issue and trying to find. I mentioned earlier. It's you know sometimes I'll find myself you know it's I've got six faith driven poems or something in this issue. I need to. It's, to look in other directions or, you know, we've already got two poems with horses in it, this issue, we can't take another horse poem or, you know, it's some, some sense of um, balancing the, the content of the, um, of the work and looking for different kinds of music that I, I don't want a station that just plays like one artist. And it's, it's even if it's different poets, sometimes it can seem like a single, um, a single artist. Mm-hmm. And I, I, even within our aesthetic, I want more distribution. Yeah, well, yeah, really well, well said. I, th- I think it's just interesting, you know. Anybody you talk to who's been through that, you know, of picking poems and and you know putting things together, it's a very similar way because there's like only one way to go about it, really. Um, and you, you have to hear hear the, the music in a poem. Do you have any advice to people for developing that? Like, if you're struggling and you don't sort of have a voice, what what is a voice, and how would you go about finding it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what happens when you read well. You know, if you're reading widely enough, you're, I mean, my my undergraduate students, especially the ones who are just starting out, they'll sometimes say things about how they don't want to sound like anyone else. And I I think that's that's not the wise way to begin the, the process of developing your voice, but rather like to try to sound like someone else who you really admire. And then to find someone else who you really admire and try to sound like them a little bit and a third person that you really admire. And like your voice isn't like something that's spontaneously generated out of you without any influences whatsoever from anyone else. But it's like a rich commingling of a lot of different valuable influences. And that's probably something that that only comes from reading widely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with that, too. Um, two lightning round quick questions, and then we'll read the last poem. They're both from Mary Torregrossa. She says, uh, and they can be yes or no questions, maybe. Do you reject poems that are good but can't be included in that particular journal at that time or that the team disagrees with but you like? 
And then there's another one too. But what about that? Um, yeah, I, I think we've definitely passed on poems that are good, but aren't right for this issue and maybe wouldn't be right for the next. I mean, I don't mind holding them for a little while, but I wouldn't want to take something that I, I didn't know when we were going to find a chance to get it into mm -hmm. the magazine. Um, so there are things that I've admired that don't seem right for 32 poems. There are definitely things that I like that other people on the team don't like and um, I get talked out of. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, how, that's how it is for Rattle, too. There's sort of this, you know, me and Alan, um, you know, we'll sit around and I'll try to pitch him to him poems, the, the founding editor, Alan Fox. And, you know, I'll argue for it. And how strongly I argue is maybe based on my opinion of it. And sometimes he's like, oh, I love it. And sometimes he cries and sometimes uh, he doesn't. And then we just like argue until we come to a resolution. Um, and, and that's kind of how it goes with Rattle. Um, so that's interesting. When one of the associate editors, like, sends me an email that's like, this is the best poem I've read all year. You know, it's, even if I'm not crazy about it, that's probably a poem that's, that's going to go in, you know? So it's when they're really passionate about a thing, I want to be easy to persuade by, by those poems. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, there are also good poems that I, I say no to. And then I, I realize I just made a mistake. Um, one, one that comes to mind, there is a poem by, um, Rebecca Hazelton, um, a poet who we've we've published now. I don't know that we had at the at the time, but I, I really admire her work a, an awful lot. And she sent me this poem um, called "Trying Four Leggedness," and I it was like in my maybe pile. And I, I there was something special about it, and I read it like two dozen times, you know, once a night for a, a several weeks. And I finally just decided I, I don't get it. I'm missing something in the poem. It's not for us. And sent her just like a, a kind note saying, I'd love for you to try us again. And then like a couple months went by and I saw it in another magazine mm -hmm. and it instantly clicked and I got it and it made sense to me in a way that she, I don't think she changed a word, but it was just that I failed the poem. I wasn't the editor that the poem deserved for me to be. And I just completely blew one um, and w would have loved to have had that poem in my magazine, but I didn't. Yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting point, too. Just some days, you know, sometimes you're in a movie theater and the, you think the movie stinks. And then <laughs> it turns out it was just that you were in a bad mood that day and you watched it again 10 years later. It's like, why did I hate that movie? It's actually pretty good. Well, mine's you know, even so... worse because it wasn't one day. Mm -hmm. It was over the course of many days. I had uh -huh. so many chances to get it right. And I still made the wrong choice. Yeah. Well, so it's. Yeah. One more quick one from Mary. Uh, she asks, uh, do you recognize the style of well-known poets who've submitted anonymously? Interesting question. Um, honestly, I don't get many anonymous submissions from well-known poets. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think they'd use their clout <laughs> mostly. Yeah. The, the thing that happens to me is that, you know, in the Rattle uh, Poetry Prize, we'll have, you know, because it's completely, very carefully anonymized. And, um, and so I'll think I know who the poet is. And then I'm wrong, like... 95 percent of the time <laughs> and so i didn't even i can't even guess like the gender of the poet you know you think that there's like some yeah. difference and i'm just like you know i thought that was you know you know some and then it's like somebody totally different and um you know certain poets do use um certain fonts you kind of like i think i know who that is because they like that font <laughs> if you see submissions a lot um but you just you can't it's really uh you know it's a it's an interesting world when you're you're looking at it that way yeah the well-known people are aren't submitting to us anonymously anyways 
though we have published poems that were submitted anonymously, that they're usually coming from people who um, are using that anonymity for some other reason. Mm -hmm. um, that um, I'm happy to fall in love with one where I don't know the poet's name, but the people who have a name I'm going to recognize usually tell me who they are. Yeah, yeah, because why not? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up. It's been fun to talk to another editor, um, but let's wrap up with your go back to your book again and the last poem you wanted to share. All right. Um, this is yesterday. Maybe one thing I'll say about this is that it's, I wanted to. It's, you know, there's the epigraph to the book is comes from um, Ecclesiastes three that. Um, I know the burden God has laid on human beings. He's made everything beautiful in its time, right? And like that burden, I think, is really kind of central to the, the poem, the, the burden of time and mortality, but also the, the beauty that is attendant to it. And I, hopefully the book is, isn't just a book of, of elegies, but there are love poems like the, the one that was published in Rattle that I read a minute ago. And then this one comes from... Um, uh, um, a little malapropism of my my oldest child, who it times such a difficult thing for them to figure out how it works, and he would say he would use this word yestermorrow to talk about yesterday, but also tomorrow or like any time that wasn't right now. You know, will we do it or did we do it yestermorrow? Or he, he was just it was some time that wasn't now, and I I found myself imagining a time outside of time where there would be no, none of like time's obligations at, um, bearing down on many of us. Yes, tomorrow. Hallelujah, it's nobody's birthday, nobody's wedding and nobody's wake. For once the glib calendar's dumb. These brave hours have sloughed off their date. No unions are striking, no voters are polled. Though, if anything, dawn has come early. While the coffee is yet to be ground, our displeasures dissolve prematurely. We're a people with bleachers to get to, outlets to enter, entrees to eat. But this morning, it's clear to anyone, nothing's planned and there's nowhere to be. If the wind at the backs of our minds is persuasive, still each destination feels wrong. We wander outside boxers to stand at the edge of our lawns. Hallelujah that here on mortality's turf, the daily's been soundly defeated. The diaries are shredded inside us. The dockets have balked and retreated. Any vows we have made to each other melt away in our mouths like confections. And at once they're replaced by the knowledge that at last we're immune to deception. The day picks up its skirts with its eyes closed, eventful, though nothing will count. I hear fireworks rebound one street over. The DeWitts in their front yard make out. As local balloonists are coasting their baskets to rest in the neighborhood park, our children eject from the tire swings and gently tear heaven apart. Even when dusk sizzles through the azaleas, the day feels unwilling to end. Stars flicker back out in the cypress. The moon seems inclined to descend. Hallelujah. The networks have canceled the news with no scandals, invasions, or earthquakes. 
What's next we'll discover in time when eternity turns into Thursday. Oh, that's great. I love that yesterday word and the story behind it, too. we got to coin that and just start using it all over the place because it makes a lot of sense. Um, it was George David Clark. That's the uh, one of the poems from his book, Newly Not Eternal, just out from LSU Press. Uh, David, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been really fun talking to you, and it's just a wonderful book. I love, uh, I love the way you use music in your poems. Well, thanks so much, Tim. Yep. Take care. That was uh, George David Clark. Once again, you can find all of his poetry at georgedavidclark.com. That's just how it's spelled, just how it sounds, George David Clark, all one word, dot com. Uh, you can find this book in his um, first book, too, um, uh, Revelé. And uh, let's see. So now we're going to go to our open lines, our prompt lines. And we're going to have our prompt poem of the month, too. So um, let's see if Lynn Knight will uh, arrive in the Zoom and uh, we'll be having fun with that. But so how this works, if you'd like to share a prompt poem right now, all you got to do is uh, go to promptlines at rattle.com. Email your poem to promptlines at rattle.com. That way uh, we can show the poem on the screen um, as the poems were appearing during the show now. And then I find the Zoom link, which is right here. I'm going to paste it into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. <clears throat> So here comes the Zoom link, and we'll pin it at the top. And uh, here comes it on Facebook as well. And uh, so the prompt for this week, as you see, was to write a poem entitled A Brief History of Something, a brief history of blank, where that is a word that needs to be translated, and the poem is less than a page. And that's a, sort of a homage-type uh, prompt to last week's guest, Remus Uzgaris, and his poem, A Brief History of Vilnius. So, uh, and that wasn't translated Vilnius, but, um, you know, he translates a lot, so we kind of combine the two into a cool prompt. Uh, and that is going to be your prompt for this week. I'll be right back uh, with that and uh, more poetry in just a second, so sit tight, and I'll be right back. And we're back, and we have our prompt poems editor here, none other than Katie Dozier, live from the Woodlands, Texas. Hey, Katie, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I love the discussion tonight. I learned a lot as somebody who's learning to <laughs> learning to try to edit poems and, and had a hard time having to send out a lot of rejections on Saturday. It was a very interesting discussion. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we don't want to, you know, get, get you too cynical with all the negativity. Poems there. I don't want to ruin that, uh, that happiness that, that you infect the uh, second half of the program with. So maybe you should, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you should make me don't send the worry. letters or something. There's plenty of sunshine in this old bag. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so this is time for the prompt poem of the month, which we're going to publish tomorrow. And tell us about the how the prompt poem reading went this month and, and what you chose. Oh, my gosh. They were so good this month. Like, it was just crazy. I looked at this and it was, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be spending the whole day sending personalized rejections because so many people deserve one <laughs> sent a lot. And I, I was really blown away. The poems seriously are getting better and better. I don't know what I'm going to do next month. <laughs> yeah. Well, we always do have, um, you know, extra poems too, that we, you know, consider for publication in the regular print issue too. So there's a, there's always like, I think we've gotten like four, maybe print poems too out of the prompt poems. So that's really great. In addition to the, I think, five winners we've had so far doing this prompt uh, of the month series. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what was it? Uh, was there one prompt that stood out this, uh, this month as the one that people wrote about most or, or were they sort of balanced? 
You know, it was it was more balanced than I was expecting it to be, actually. I mean, of course, we're trying to balance the prompts, too, and have some form in them. And then also some things that inspire maybe people to take a little take it in like a little bit of a weirder direction. So I would say it was pretty balanced what everybody wrote, because there are a lot of people that write for everyone. And that's really exciting for me to get to read. And also sometimes I can pull out and say, like, hey, I think that this was your strongest poem of the month. And it's really fun to get to read so many different people's poems and like really get to know them as poets through it too, because, you know, we're not doing it blind for this one category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that's the thing too, that, that's uh, important to note that, you know, people worry about if they read the poem on the show, um, this is the one category of rattle where it's not anonymized at all. Cause we want to encourage everybody to read them on the show. And, um, and so, you know, so given that we can't really anonymize anything if we've seen the poems before, but, um, and I don't think you're as forgetful as me. So if I've seen them before, I, I probably have no recollection. <laughs> I don't even well, remember my own poems. But, my um... poker training came into play because <laughs> I used to have to play poker with my friends. It's kind of the same thing. I mean... <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. But so, so we have uh, Lynn Knight is our prompt poem of the, or poet of the month. Um, and Lynn's here. But do you want to explain, you know, why, what you liked about this poem, why you chose it? And then we'll have Lynn on to share it too. You know, I, I love this poem from from the onset. You know, I, I do my reading in a way where I do the first reading and it's not a detailed read. It's like a get you to the next round kind of read. And this poem immediately captured all of my attention and I just loved it. It made me laugh out loud. And then it it made me think more deeply about things, too, which is what I love the most, perhaps, in poems. So I'm really excited that she's here to read it and share it with us right now. Yeah, it's really exciting to have Lynn Knight, who was um, on the Rattlecast way back in the first year and uh, also a Rattle Poetry Prize winner in the past. Um, hey, Lynn, how you doing? It's great to see you again. Thanks so much. Um, thank you, Katie. And thank you, Tim, as always. And thank you for that great conversation. That was fascinating, the two editors. And then the poems are so beautiful. They're yeah. really wonderful poems. Oh, well, thank you. So, so, so well, it's great to see you again. It's, it's been a while. And can you tell us, you know, how this poem came to be? Why did you, um, why did you pick this prompt? And, and how did you jump into it? Um, I think the only thing that happened was that I I loved the Diana Getz poem that inspired it, and I wanted to write about um, a silent encounter. And so I sort of went back through my long memory about silent encounters. And this is not an actual recount of one, but it's close enough. So that's what happened. Mm -hmm. well, why don't you go ahead and now so we can all... Uh... It's a nice segue from the earlier conversation because I am old enough now, and that's what this poem is really about, to feel the burden of time and um, mortality. So mm -hmm. here we go. And I have discovered that the one of the best ways of dealing with that is humor. So body talk. Sometimes in airports... I leave my body behind, my old body, I mean. I step into the younger version, the one where I flirt with just about anybody. Who cares? Because nobody knows me. It has to be a big airport, preferably international. And I carry on as if I'm not even 30 yet. So whoever stares back at me can trust me and start imagining how hot it will be to ditch the flight and head for an airport hotel. This happened the other day. He was maybe late 40s, no gut, but nothing too fit. 
just a nice looking guy who wouldn't make a quick fuck complicated or need to ask my name afterward just to be polite. So I smile. He smiled back. Maybe not at me. The gate was jammed with people still trying to rebook after storms the day before. Still, the 20-something me went right on trying to woo. I decided to pull my carry-on closer, wanting to be sure he meant his smile for me. I moved closer, closer, and he stood offering the old lady his seat. Yeah, that's a great punchline type ending and a, and a great poem, too, on, on a number of levels. You know, humor dealing with serious issues at the same time. Um, thanks so much for sharing that and, and, you know, participating in it. It's really fun to have you here, Lynn. Um, Katie, do thanks you for add, having me. Yeah, do you want to add anything to, uh, to that poem, Katie? I just want to say that um, your note, Lynn, it, it was great how you just said you were just having some fun. Like maybe you didn't expect it to be an amazing poem. And I, I love of expectation because I just thought it was a spectacular poem and I, I love you know unlocking a deeper subject through humor I just think it was masterfully done thank you thank you thanks for writing it yeah thanks, thanks. so much and it is great to see you and, and everybody should go back to that um Rattlecast uh, early on I, I told you know Katie earlier she was like Tim when you know that a poet's coming up <laughs> You should look at the actual number of the episode. And um, and I didn't do that this time. I'm going to guess, it's though, 16. 27. 16. 16. Ah, 11 <laughs> off. Okay. Well, episode number 16 with Lynn Knight. And just uh, outstanding. One of my favorite poets always. He's got so many great books. Um, and great to see you. And thanks for being here, Lynn. Thank you so much, Tim. Yep. And thank you for everything you do. It's just wonderful. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. Take care. Yes, that was Lynn Knight with uh, Tomorrow's Poem, Body Talk, uh, the prop poem of the month. And uh, now, Katie, we have a prop poem for this week. Um, what was the prop for this week once again? It was, um, let's see, it was. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to say, this no. is a bad one to have to say off the top of my head. I got, I got it right here. I got it right here. Okay. It is to write a poem entitled A Brief History of X, where X is a word that needs to be translated and the poem is less than a page. So uh, so that was the prompt for this week. Uh, what did you come up with? Well, <laughs> I have to say it's funny because, you know, I write short poems, as everybody pretty much knows. And so the one that has a brief history of is the one where I end up wanting to write a longer poem. Right, guys? That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but it is a page. It's just a, a condensed, you know, it fits on the page. So I passed. It does. I think. I think you've uh, <laughs> you pulled Barely. a honey cut there. You've honey. I, I was gonna say. <laughs> I did. I took inspiration. No. <laughs> okay. Well, let's hear it. And you got to tell us what the word means too, because I had to look it up. Okay. Well, I think I think they'll know. Okay. I don't. <laughs> they will. But okay. Maybe not for my horrible pronunciation of anything approaching French. Okay. <laughs> A Brief History of Le Petit Déjeuner. Do you remember Complete Breakfast? How the camera would glaze over them, frost them with the lens, as if the sliced strawberries were a movie star's thighs. Yes, this may just be flaked sugared corn, they seem to say, but you can make this breakfast beautiful. There is nothing worth noting on my lingering on my own unphotogenic breakfast. Toaster strudels grabbed hot, came with a packet of icing I'd squirt on while shielding my breakfast, 
completely from the bus driver. There is no want like the things we don't have time for, the breakfast we can't fork back. These days, my meal's composed of crust and too melty cheese, the dark side of bananas. But there was that one in Paris, on my honeymoon, after a red eye, the sky still clinging to the dark near the old Bastille prison in Montmartre, the yogurt thick as ice cream, raspberries still with a couple of leaves on them almost glowing in their red, unblemished youth, no hands having yet tried to squish them. And I know he was there, too, speaking perfect French while I undoubtedly volunteered an accidental hola. I can't quite picture him, but I sense a looming carafe of concentrated orange juice almost teetering on the corner, balancing one of my many checkerboard breakfasts to come. Everyone has known an orange one that you sip again and again for years, trying to pretend its fresh squeeze could really taste like the sun, if only you could train your taste buds to taste just as you're told to. But really, you drink just because someone went to the trouble of stirring it, setting it down, vaguely chilled, on the table. Probably you did. But walk away anyway. Believe me when I say you already paid for it. Yeah, it's a great poem and great metaphor at the end, Katie. And I have to ask, though, um, mm -hmm. now that you've read it on the uh, prompt lines, are you going to re-line break it so it's a page and a half instead of one page? <laughs> I feel like the lines are too long. <laughs> <laughs> they might be. I feel like it's also funny because, like, <clears throat> I don't know why I realized that I think I accidentally matched my sweater to my poem. So I apologize <laughs> for well, that's that. that's perfect. That's like product placement. That's great. <laughs> I was like, why do I want to wear orange? It's it's February. <laughs> anyway. Well, excellent move and then calling yourself out for it. That's perfect. But but a great poem. I, I really love that. Uh, I love that. So thanks oh, for sharing thanks. it. And I know I know you got the girls solo right now. So if you gotta leave, don't worry about it. I gotta it, hear but... your poem before I leave. Well, okay. You're not getting out of well, it. That well if easy. you gotta sneak out though, we won't hold it against you, is all I'm saying. I will okay. have to leave though after that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, so here's my poem. And you know, I for, for years I've been writing mostly um personal lyrics. Um, you know, it's kind of what I do with different forms and stuff. I'm trying to figure out a way to get out of myself. And I don't know if it's going to work, but, uh, but we'll see. But this is, um, I decided to just, I had to do the first foreign, I looked up a thing was like interesting foreign words. And I, I told myself I have to do the first one, no matter what it is. And I decided to do a prose poem based on that. And so the first word was, I don't need, I can't say this. Let me try. It's German. And I'm like a lot German. So maybe I should be able to say it, <laughs> but the word is, this is a brief history of Bakfifen, oh shoot, Bakfifen, Bakfifengishik, something like that, Bakfifengishik, but um, that is translated directly as a face in need of a fist. So um, somebody, we used to call it in like college, a punchable face, like that kid's got a punchable face. But uh, <laughs> here we go with um, a brief history of Bakfifengishik. He was born with a face in need of a fist, and he knew it. It wasn't the softness of his cheeks, though they were soft, stuffed full with buckwheat and memory foam. It wasn't that he had a glass jaw or made an easy target. He knew he could take a punch, knew it from the moment he shot through the sheetrock wall of the world, screaming, hole he made a little cave in the cracks of the gypsum. It was something deeper than the flesh of fist could see itself sink into, deeper than the bones beneath the flesh, heavier than the weight of their insistence, the persistence of their shape, even shattered. He moved through life looking for the fist that his face had been missing. He must have, seeing how often it found him. So that is a brief history of Bakfifenichernach. 
Well, that's, I, I very much enjoy that. I think that's a harder word to translate than le petit déjeuner. Also, <laughs> I would have struggled with, with getting into it on that one. All right. Well, thanks, Katie. It's always, you know, a pleasure as always, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. And then I'll also see you on Thursday for the poetry space. That's true, for the poetry space. And we are talking about... Da, da, da. We were talking about love poems. And so last year we covered love poems and we kind of moved around and danced around the idea that everything is a love poem almost. So we're going to focus on romantic love poems, which I didn't tell you until right now. But oh. surprise, we're okay. focusing well, I'll, on romantic I'll dig love poems. up some poems. romantic love poems samples. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Whether or not, you know, it's interesting, too. So many people we interview say that they started writing poetry to, you know, win people over to, to find affection, you know, especially the men, mm-hmm. you know, it's a kind of a thing that they do. So we'll see if it's Nobody did that effective. for me. I would have taken that. Where was that in high school? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see if we can find any effective love poems. We'll measure it based on that. But anyway. All right. I'll think I will be listening with my daughters. Yeah, so. I'm sure you okay. will. Yeah. And thanks so okay. much, Katie. And, and we'll All see right, you later. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye. It was Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor, and uh, with our two prompt poems this week. And now let's. Uh, so we have uh, twenty-two people on the line right now, which is a good. That's a, it's more than normal, I think, because it was the prompt poem of the month week. We have more than we usually do, so be mindful of that if we would. You know, no, uh, no, try to sneak in long poems or extra poems, and we'll try to be quick and get through. I'm gonna get through everybody no matter how long it takes, but uh, but just be cognizant of the fact that there's a lot of people here. But let's start with Dick Westheimer, who jumped right on, as he tends to do. He's got the quick fingers. Hey, Dick, how you doing? I'm good. Um, I, I, I haven't laughed that hard with the fist in the face word in quite a while. Maybe I should get out more, but that was hilarious. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, um, I misinterpreted. I, I, I should say I misread the prompt a little bit. I, I Rather than have a word from a foreign language, I had a word from... A foreign idea. Um, well, translated from science into regular speech. <laughs> There's that yeah, too, I think. And uh, as always, you know, we say a couple of notes. Always, whatever, wherever the poems go, we're happy that a poem was generated out of the prompt. And then also, if you want to read like older prompt poems that you finished, but you didn't finish within a week, feel free to share older ones too. So I should always say, but yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I love the challenge of coming up with one each week. And I just came up with a word that sounded good in the title. Mm-hmm. And then went from there. I, I, you know, I had all these other ideas of idea words uh, in Hebrew, and I thought, no, I just need to do something that sounds good. Yeah. So it's a brief history of bosons or bosons. Yeah, that does sound uh, good. Um, and the uh, epigraph uh, is from the CERN site: stars, planets, and life could only emerge because particles gained math mass from a fundamental field associated with Higgs boson the famed particle that lives for a mere uh, less than a trillionth of a billionth of a second. Yeah, that's an amazing fact. (laughs) It is. So it fits with a brief history. You couldn't have a long history of bosons. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, A brief history of bosons. A brief history of bosons is redundant, is a reminder that what holds everything together, like a caress, is short-lived, that the weakest force is fundamental to what makes every star shine. Glance over the bare shoulder of the girl you've yearned for carries more weight than any crush. Every boson is new and gone before you realize that the nearer you get, the more powerful the pull. So lean close for the kiss 
that even gravity can't resist. And when the force is too much, give in. For that is how everything in the universe is made, even love. Uh, great metaphor and great music in that poem, too. Dick, thanks for sharing it. Yeah, thanks, Tim. There's uh, Dick Westheimer with a brief history of bosons. Let's go uh, next to a first-time uh, caller, Zoomer here, Judy Clarence. Oh, me. Hi. Yeah, you. Hi, Judy. Yeah, great to see you. <laughs> hi, hi. Um, I'm actually reading from the prompt, the previous prompt, not this one. That's the one about, is that? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Katie, have... Katie asked me to, the one, this is the one about the stranger, uh, mm -hmm. a silent interaction with a stranger. Yeah, yeah, we feel free to read any from, you know, any time. From... Sometimes it's well, hard Katie... to finish one within a week or whatever, and sometimes you can't make it for <laughs> well, a week. Yeah, so that's great. Well, Kate, Katie invited me to, to oh. be here tonight and to read this poem, so I'm just responding to what I told to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. And it's interesting, It's this is also has... Some French in it, and my French is not good, but I'll do my best. Um, it's called Shattuck Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people are familiar with Chez Panisse, the very fancy French restaurant in Berkeley, California, that uh, was closed for a while. It is now reopened. Shattuck Avenue. On the steps outside the gate of Chez Panisse, he sits, spare changing. Shell bean gratin, chantelles, carrot ginger soup, plum galette, not to mention Benoit Le Hay Rosé, Cordas Granite 2010 Vintage, once graced the tables here, bare now for years. He fumbles with his tired mask. He's hungry and worn out. If only I could burst open those locked doors and shower him with creme brulee, with, Bourg with Bourgogne Rouge, with chewy ginger cookies, could toss him toasted almonds, spit-roasted chicken with pain de pie. I smile and keep walking. Somewhere I see Alice Waters placing garlic mustard, spice berries, sweet pizzetta, squash blossoms, snow king peaches, and strewing them like garlands at his shoeless feet. Oh, uh, yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, Shattuck Avenue. And I love mm -hmm. the details and all the uh, the special, <laughs> you know, cooking words. You know, it's interesting, too, with the, um, you know, these. Thank you. It's rare, you know, and rattle it all that I hear poems that I hadn't read as submissions. It's only with the prompt poems and the aphrastic <laughs> challenge that I don't read everything. So um, interesting to see that for the first time. Thanks for sharing that, Judy. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was uh, Judy, uh, Judy Clarence from uh, Penn Valley, California, sharing that Shattuck Avenue. Mm -hmm. Next up, we will go to Douglas Silver. Hey, Tim, Katie, all the poets. Hey, Douglas. Yeah, great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks. I uh, just want to give a quick thank you to Audrey Friedman. I know she's not here, but a while back she mentioned Drifting Sands, the Journal of Haibun and Tonka Prose. They just accepted a poem from me, and uh, it'll be in the next issue, so I wanted to thank her for that. Oh, congratulations. I just, I to be also, yeah, there's been a lot of great Haibun here at Rattle, so Katie, Tim, I heard you talk earlier about submitting poems and all that, but you know, I invite you to submit them to, um, to Drifting Sands or any of the poets because there's been some great Haibun here. Jared at Rattlecast, so um, I'll put their address in the chat at the end. Very cool, yeah, thanks. Thanks. I wrote a poem called uh, A Brief History of Ayer, which I just emailed in today. Mm -hmm. Yep, I have it right here. Thank you. I know it's not me, I mean, not just me, but why does everything seem less funny than it used to? 
In Spanish, especially Mexican Spanish, since there are many, mañana means morning and tomorrow, literally, but figuratively it means not now, but sometime in the future, maybe. I think ayer in all Spanishes means yesterday, literally, and I think ayer could also mean not now, but sometime in the past, maybe. Everything seems more funny ayer. I mean, Jamie D imitating his father saying, Fick it, Susan, with an I, and I'd laugh and laugh the more he said it. And Douglas O, after his night as a dishwasher in a high-end restaurant, imitating the owner chef, hurry up, you lazy SOB, and I'd laugh and laugh the more he said it. And Richard Pryor, using the F word and the N word, and every letter of the alphabet word more and better than anyone ever. And I'd laugh and laugh the more he said it. I know it's not me, I mean, not just me, but I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Not since ayer. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Another great ending and a great word too. Reminds me of um, the yestermorrow. From, yes, uh, I wrote that George down David from Pryor. your talk with George. Yeah, yeah, uh, but that is a word. You know, not now is a great sort of category that we don't really use in you know in English. It's really nice. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. A different concept of time as well, which I like. Not always looking at our watches and things and our phones. You know, there's different ways to to share time. Yeah, thanks yeah, I mean, a lot. So how useful night. that would be. You know, why are you gonna do that? Right? <laughs> not now. <laughs> <laughs> bring that out. Thanks for sharing that, Douglas. Thank you. That was a Douglas Silver with a brief history of Ayer. And next, let's go to another first time caller. We have uh, Margaret um, Pleganis here. Thank you for having me, and thank you, folks, for such uh, inspiring and and tickling poems today. <laughs> oh well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and so, what did you uh, what did you have for us to share? Uh, I. Jumped on the chance to an acrostic challenge to uh, focus on a, a photograph. Ah, mm-hmm. And uh, Katie sent me a response that says, Ah, couldn't get you in, but won't you consider reading it when we get together Monday night? So oh, great. Well, I'm so glad. So I, mm-hmm. I'm new, and here's my. Uh, Here's my conversation with my brother, Harry. Mm-hmm. And uh, the conversation is a poem called Tar Paper and Two by Fours. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much. I have it on the screen for everybody watching on, on YouTube and stuff. So go ahead and read it. Yeah. Years ago, I photographed you in your go-kart, framed you full center in our backyard near the ramshackle barn, chicken coops, rusty fence, tangled morning glory vines. The old print I hold now looks blacker, whiter, even more gray than the day itself. Memories should fade over decades, but the longer I let time steep, details I didn't see then focus sharper now. Emotions I didn't feel then fill me full color now. Pride holds your head still. Trust rivets your sober eyes to my face, my lens. Your dignity challenges me. Take your picture. Respect 
your invention. You were born to scrounge plywood scraps, axles, nuts, bolts, wheels, roof shingles, two by fours. You were forged to hang engine blocks from trees. You were born to make things move on land and water. You grip a Cecil steering rope rigged to baby carriage wheels. You brace your back and sneakers on two by four struts holding up your streamlined plywood roof. Our younger brother squats in back, arms wrapped around his dungaree knees. He's poised to jump, ready to push your boy-powered hope machine on wheels, shove your wood wagon and drag race hope. The photo testifies years you lugged hope down alleys, crashed demolition derby hope through fences, hammered and nailed hope to custom chassis, hauled hope out of our hopeless backyard. Oh, I love that, especially the ending. Thanks for sharing that. And then we have the photo too, which I'll scroll down and show. This is the photo that inspired Wow, that's such a great family photo. So those that's why you should be everybody if you have haven't read yet, you should be watching on or if you already read, you should be watching on YouTube because you can see the photo. But um if not, go back and swing. But it's a great photo of um the you know boys playing with a kind of a you know race car in the backyard. That's really beautiful. And um and just such great memories. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I can definitely relate to that. Uh, I, what was that line? I love that um, um, de- the demo- crash demolition derby hope through fences. It reminds me of my <laughs> little brother, actually, too. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you, guys. Thank yep. you. Take care. Yeah, and that was uh, um, Margaret uh, Pilganis uh, from Hartford, Connecticut, sharing that poem, which was uh, Tar Paper and Two Butt Fours. Yeah, very nice. Let's go next to another, uh, another first-time caller, Jared Campbell is here hello hey jared yeah how you doing yep doing okay um so i i wrote a brief history of hiraith which is a welsh word meaning nostalgia longing homesickness Uh um it can be a longing for a homeland that never was a longing to be reunited with your homeland's culture or it can also mean regret Mm -hmm. so yeah, very interesting word. Yeah, it's not one I'm familiar with, but a great, definitely very useful word again, too. And I may ask, too, where are you calling from? Because I, I was... Oh, uh, can, uh, uh, Kansas. Ah, well, very nice. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. And yeah, I'm excited to hear this poem. Let's, let's go ahead. Um, the things that fall between the sofa cushions of the brain, like the smell of straw in autumn, the wrinkles is where the knowledge is, right? The in-betweens, the lost... The euthanasia is where the knowledge is, like burning leaves and watching the Schottenheimer chiefs lose. Fuck you. You think we'll all fucking die so you can, so you can, you think you can live forever. Just, we will come back forever. We're coming back like measles. Every time you think, I'll ride to the graveyard, I'll return to the smell of the however many guns salute, out past the pastures where we place our dead. Vaccines, autoimmunity, and the changing nature. God knew what he was doing all along. Afternoon melts into evening like affogato wonder bread. Hours wrinkled like New Yorker print. Fake news. Your time is wrinkled with confinement. 
you can't contain it. You're too small for your time, and your Puritan time has no space for you. Time has space enough for what we fill it with. Tiny bowls and tiny spoons. Time is the frown you made, accepting a Wonder Bread sandwich at Grandma's house the night before Grandpa's funeral. Love is the act of coming home. Love is an act. Fake news. Love is acting convincingly. Love is acting like it's not a chore. Did you see that? See what? She frowned at you. She frowned at you like Wonder Bread. Oh, really interesting poem. A lot of passion there. Great reading of it, too, and a lot of energy shifting back and forth. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Jared. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It was Jared Campbell with A Brief History of Horaeth. Very interesting. Um, yeah, and great. Hope you come back soon. Uh, you know, all the three so far, the first-time callers have been wonderful, so hope you come back regularly. All right, let's go to Brian O'Sullivan next. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brian. Yeah, great to see you. Good to see you. So, yeah, so what have we got? Um, I sent something called a brief history of Prata. Prata? Sorry. No, yeah, I mean, Prata, yeah every, every word I have no idea what these words Prata, are. Prata, actually. So I'm so it's, uncultured. Um, it's Irish for potato. Simple oh, okay. Word. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Big history, though. Uh, yeah, so okay. go along with, with your, you know, what you've been working on uh, a lot. The, yeah, exactly. The sabbatical work. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, a little bit at a time. Um, yeah, it starts with a, an epigraph from something called the Schools Collection, which was an interesting project. They did this project in Ireland in the 1930s to try to capture like folk knowledge before it went away. Hmm. Um, and they had school children interview older people in their towns, and um, both in Irish and in English, write down those stories and preserve them. And now they're on the internet and searchable, which is really kind of neat. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So it starts with that. Um, Miss, Mrs. James O'Mahony, Clondarine. 80 years old, made starch from potatoes in her own home 60 years ago. That is, before she was married. She peeled them, boiled them from Pratai, an oral history t- uh, taken by student T. Holland from Johanna O'Mahedi as part of the school's collection. And the particle of potato starch stirred by a student's pen floated for 90 years, crossing the Atlantic, diving into the internet to find Johanna's great-grandson, who thought that her mother must have smiled when she passed on this old spell, this act of granular gras, particulate love that's all, that almost died off when the Pratai failed in the bad times. The men had salvaged tiny sprouts growing from blighted black potatoes while the women cooed and patted the hungry babes. Now there are Pratai again, all kinds like Irish greens and evergreens, enough that Johanna could wash some and scrape them into boiling water to thicken them into starch to stiffen dignity in a collar better than the store-bought Robin Starch ever could do, so that her father might hold his head high when, on a Sunday morning, his bones still aching, his boots washed as clean as they could be, he yoked ponies through a trap and drove the growing family to Roundstown, past the crumbling cottages of the departed, to sit in a pew behind the stronger farmers. And after Mass, the family would eat the pratai that Johanna and her mother made. They peeled boiled potatoes, peeled them, bruised them, and mixed them with flour to make cakes. I wonder why they bruised them, and whether bruising made them look blighted. But she peeled them, peeled them, as if to strip away all that was bitter, and to make smooth that which was tough in the long wake of hunger. 
Oh, great. I love that, too. Thanks so much for sharing that history, Brian. It's really fascinating you. to, you know, pull from sources like that to, you know, and I get to learn along with getting to enjoy some poems. <laughs> Thanks for sharing it. No, thank you. Yep. So Brian O'Sullivan, and that was um, A Brief History of Pratai. Now let's go to Monica Dobos next. Hi, Tim. Hi, Hi everyone. Monica. Yeah, great to see you. I have a Romanian word here. <clears throat> which comes from the Latin pluvia. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a rhyme and meter girl, but uh, for some reason, these, this refrain, my love and I kept popping up. So, hmm, And then also, I need to, I need to guard you. Uh, this is more of an experimental poem. So. <laughs> well, you, anyway. you tend to experiment, so I'm not surprised. I'm looking forward to it. And, I, you know, I don't know. I don't mean to put down experimental poems in the... In the show earlier. I, um, yeah. I like experiments when I go somewhere. I just don't like experimenting for experiment's sake. I guess I should put it that way. All right. Let's see if goes anywhere. <laughs> All right. A brief history of Playa. Silver people in silken dresses fill up a silted sky. Most of them know neither where they're going nor why. By the window, we watch them numb, my love and I. A mayhem of wind, leaves, dentures, cataracts, broken limbs. Some carry felines under under arms. Others take their clocks for walks. Brave ones pull out arthritis from their thighs, wring it good, hang it out on blue finches to dry. The dark gray duel in forks and firebolts. Those who can still lift their arms battle each other with canes which brings a rumble and makes coxcombs flee the weather veins. We get the hampers out, my love and I, ready for the ladies who pull up their brimful skirts and drop the water babies. We fetch the hampers by the fire, my love and I, and name the babies Lorelei. We bless the food, the plants, the books, the kids with Lorelei, and keep a single hamper Overnight between my love and I. In the morning, we take the hamper out and sprinkle sage, saffron, sugar, and pour the babies back to earth, my love and I. While pages fill with poems, we bid goodbye and thank you, Lorelei. Oh, yeah, very beautiful. I love the internal rhyme and the repetition. It's all buried in there with a refrain. Thanks for sharing that, Monica. Thank you. Yep, take care. So Monica Dobos with a brief history of Ploai. I should have said that better, probably. <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, next in line we have Joe Cottonwood. Okay. Hey, Joe. Um, I, I hope I stay on. I'm on backup power at my house. Oh, that's it, that's our, where are you? Where are you from, living? I'm Joe? in La Honda. Uh huh. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I got a generator that already flaked out on me once, and I oh really? But I hope the power stays on reconnect. for sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll give it a shot here. So uh, it's this week's prompt I'm uh, writing, mm -hmm. and um, it, some of those prompts I have to scratch my head. And, but this one, I just, oh, I know exactly, and I went straight to writing this. Um, it's, a, it's a personal history. Mm -hmm. I guess it comes easy. It's called A Brief History of Grazie Ciao. Oh, interesting. Italian, of course. A Brief History of Grazie. Ciao. He writes for an Italian newspaper. 
asked for my comments about Amanda Knox, because this is 15 years ago when frenzied falsehoods of Amanda the murdering bitch were hot news. I say nobody in Italy would care what I think. He says people respect you here, which shows how twisted things are in Italy, where my novel about my life as a potato is popular. Okay, so I say the prosecutor is a bully with satanic fantasies who is handling Amanda the way we treat black people in Alabama. He says, grazie, ciao, thanks, and goodbye. That's the end of it, until one morning my inbox is full of hate mail and a reporter from CNN is calling to ask why there is a warrant for my arrest. So, I contact the newspaper guy who says, defamation of a public official is not a, is not a civil case, but is a crime against the Italian state, which is prosecuted by the Italian government. And remember, Italy is a police state. You can't talk about the law the way you talk about a football, but not to worry, they can only arrest you on Italian soil, so grazie. Ciao. Wow, what a story there, Joe. That's incredible. <laughs> so you you can't you you can't go to Italy, huh? Probably not. Wow, wow, that's a really interesting story. One of the more interesting ones we've heard here on the prod lines or the rattlecast. Yes, yeah, so it was pretty weird. That that really is. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's a fun fun mm. poem too. As a Joe Cottonwood with a history of grazia ciao. All right, so that's going to wrap up the Zoom, I think, yeah. And, you know, there are other people who send in poems, but this is one of those weeks where we're not going to be able to read extra poems. So um, maybe save them, come in on the Zoom next week if you were hoping I'd read one for you. Um, let's go quickly to the uh, Saiku for the week. And the Saiku for this week is uh, based on this article right here, which I shall pull up. We were watching uh, Finding Dory <laughs> with the kids on Saturday, I think it was. And so um, this caught my eye originally, and I think it was in, uh, where did I see it? Science Daily or something. But then it's from the, um, what is it from? The, uh, well, it's OIST, which, oh, there it is. The Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology. That's what this is from. And uh, the story is right here, and it is this. Um, here we go. It is, uh, <clears throat> man, I thought I made it small enough. Here we go. Um, clownfish seem to be counting bars and laying down the law. New research suggests uh, that the fish may be counting vertical bars on intruders to determine their threat level and to inform the social hierarchy governing the sea anemone colonies. So the very interesting thing about clownfish is they sort of like live in these sea anemones. Anemones? Am I saying that right? And they um and they kind of like guard it and like it's like little little like condos or something for the clownfish. And they let other clownfish in, but not if you're not part of their family. Um, and they let other species in kind of freely though. But if you're a different clownfish family, um, the alpha male comes in and chases you out. And what's interesting is that they did all these little experiments using um different models with like stripes. You know, and so they realized in a previous study that clownfish actually respond to vertical stripes, but not horizontal stripes. Now they found out that the clownfish are more aggressive 
to m extra stripes. So the more stripes you have, the more the clownfish is going to get mad if you approach his, um, his sea anemone thing. And it's like they use these various techniques to kind of show that they were actually like, counting the stripes. It wasn't just like the... Um, amount of like whiteness in the surface area or the ratio or something it was actually like one two three stripes was like much more of a threat to them because the bigger fish have more stripes um so they kind of count the stripes so that is the uh the science story um inspired by finding dory and the saiku inspired by that is this right here <clears throat> weekends hitting another bar clownfish that's weekends hitting another bar. Clownfish. That is your Saiku for this week. And uh, now let's go to Katie Dozier, who is still here. Um, and we will talk a little bit about next week's uh, prompt. Hey, Katie. Hey, and shout out to Lizzie, who's watching on my iPad in the kitchen. Ah, hey, Lizzie. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> doing some uh, art at the same time, probably. Yes, she is. She is making, <laughs> uh, I think, a dragon head thing. So, yes. Yeah. Well, looking forward to seeing you again tomorrow lizzie so uh yeah thanks for watching the show another viewer and she was like what's that number by the Rattlecast?" and i was like that's how many shows tim has done and she was like whoa yeah, that's, although she's probably done more more shorts though i don't know though she's she's interested she asked if we could go back and watch the first one mm -hmm. after we finish this tonight so the first oh, Rattlecast. well that's a little embarrassing <laughs> go ahead. Uh, and lizzie though do hit the like button so if you're still watching anybody including lizzie make sure to hit the like button to uh make sure poetry is spread around the internet that'd be much appreciated <laughs> Um, so anyway, so I don't know if you wrote down the prompt because we were talking about it, so you don't. But I did. I don't even know if you know how I phrased it, though. So you, you picked no, we it. We went back and forth because also we wanted to originally incorporate 32 because of 32 poems. But then we didn't because we, you know, we'd already we just done one that was limiting it to a page. I think I did. though. I put it down there. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Yeah, so <laughs> so this was, um, we can have short poems still. This was, write a song of someone or something as a persona uh -huh. poem less than 32 lines long. Maybe okay, we should, say, should we say exactly 32 lines? Oh, exactly 32. I feel like, I feel much? like, I think we're going to get people really forcing that form and like get But, but maybe it's inter interesting to play with it though. Like maybe it'll right. create some imagination. What do you think? Maybe it will. Okay. Okay. Do you let's do it. Do you it. can say no. You're the prompt poems editor. Let's do 32 lines. But okay. if you like, you know, you'll, you'll do 32 lines and you'll make it work. People, I believe we're work. ready we for have challenges. Faith. We have faith. They're great poets all like over. Yeah. yeah, the harder the prompts, the better the poems. Honestly, is how it feels. I mean, tonight's poems were incredible. They, they really were. So were. Good. Yeah, yeah. Great round, yeah, great poems all around. So here is the prompt, then I'll put it on the screen. Write a song of someone or something as a persona poem, thirty-two lines long. That is the prompt for this week. So, and that'll make sure that people are actually writing it too, or at least editing something into a thirty-two line poem. Yeah. And that was, of and course, then... um, you know, George David Clark had those uh, several poems in the book. Uh, but you want to go back and read those, which were uh, mm -hmm. Song of the Garden Angel, Song of the Imaginary mm -hmm. Friend, Song of the Genie. Mm -hmm. So he's got these songs mm -hmm. of things. So you can do mm -hmm. a song of something, and that'll be the prompt for this yeah. week. A lot of fun. And I, I think we should say, too, it doesn't have to be titled Song of, mm -hmm. at least was my vision for it, because I know we just, did, we just did the prompt that was, you know, dictating the title. So mm -hmm. it can be, you know, you just it is a song, but you don't have to tell us it's a song. Or you can be like Taylor Swift and tell everyone that you're a poet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you can't see, but I did not put uh, quotes around song of. It's just like just a statement. 
right there. Okay. So just Song of Summer okay, or good. something as a persona Great. poem, 32 lines long. So we'll see what people do with that. That'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. It'll also be interesting if somebody actually wants to nitpick and count that it's exactly 32 <laughs> lines because I will not be doing that. So I will trust you blindly. <laughs> it could be a 32 lines minus one. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right so uh yeah so thanks so much for for picking that out katie and uh thanks for doing all this great stuff you do too thanks for the great show it was really wonderful tonight uh, okay well good night night yeah so that was katie dozier our prompt poems editor and that was your prompt for this week and of course the um prompt lines submissions are open now we always wait a couple days so there's like a nice demarcation we do that for the faster challenge too just because otherwise you get confused over which one's which like people you wouldn't think but if you open the deadline you know the day after um you know people submit for the old one even though it's past the deadline and then you get so confused and so um so it's just open up again so you can submit your poems either your poems for this week which was um, the uh, the hist- brief history of things, or next week's prompt, write a song of someone or something as a persona poem, 32 lines long. So that'll be a lot of fun. Now, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Joshua Eric Williams. I know, so you might remember Joshua Eric Williams. We nominated a haiku for a, a Pushcart Prize last year, and that haiku didn't win a Pushcart Prize, sadly, but it did go on to win a... Um, uh, a touchstone award is one of the from the haiku foundation is one of the best three i think they give haiku of the entire year and um and then red moon press published a book called silent after by joshua eric williams where that is one of the poems in the book but of course many other wonderful haiku in that book so we're looking forward to talking haiku again next week we'll explore it again with joshua eric williams other stuff he does too he's a really interesting guy um, that's going to be uh, Rattlecast number 232 with your songs of someone or something. Uh, Monday, February 12th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a good week in the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>